You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, bringing you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics, and today we've got a show I've been wanting to have for a long time, probably one I've been wanting since this podcast got started, and yeah, we finally got it. I am interviewing today someone to help me respond to Bart Ehrman's latest book, Jesus Before the Gospels. So you might have heard this about this book, I wrote a review of my blog, and about how Bart Ehrman is looking at memory and how reliable it is and can we really trust the accounts of Jesus. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could have a scholar on who knows about this kind of area, knows about memory, knows about eyewitness testimony very well and could respond to Ehrman. And in fact, if you listen to Unbelievable, and I haven't got caught up to this yet, he has responded to Ehrman, and I believe in two different episodes. And I'm just thrilled to have him on. My guest today is Dr. Richard Borkham. And uh, he is a biblical scholar and theologian. His academic work and publications have ranged over many areas of subjects, including theology of Jürgen Moltmann, Christology, both New Testament systematic, eschatology, New Testament books of Revelation, James, Second Peter, and Jude, Jewish and Christian apocalyptic literature, the Old Testament pseudepigrapher, New Testament Apocrypha, Relatives of Jesus, Uri Jerusalem Church, the Bible and Contemporary Issues, and Biblical and Theological Approaches to Environmental Issues. In recent years, much of his work has focused on Jesus and the Gospels. His probably best-known books are Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, the Gospels as Eyewitness Testimony, God Crucified, Monotheism and Christology in the New Testament, Theology of the Book of Revelation, the Bible and Ecology, and Technical Scholarship and Writing aimed at students and those of some theological background. He's also in accessible books for a wider readership, which was best known as At the Cross, Meditations on People Who Were There, which he wrote with Trevor Hart. And the recent one is Jesus, A Very Short Introduction. In various books have appeared in translation in Italian, Japanese, Chinese, Russian, Korean, Spanish, Portuguese, French, and Farsi. Until 2007, he was professor of New Testament studies at the University of St. Andrews, Scotland. I retired early he, he died early reading this one thing, in order to concentrate on research and writing and move to Cambridge. And for more information, you can see a short CV. In your, in, on that, you'll see a complete list of publications and his, about his forthcoming books. You can also read unpublished papers, lectures, and sermons, and find more about the Old Testament Pseudepigraphica project directed by himself and James Devilla. And in fact, he's written some poetry. Two storybooks for children, which adults also enjoy, about the Macabells of Berlock. Dr. Borkham, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thank you. I- I'm looking at this uh, academic dialogue. My gosh, how do you have time for anything else whatsoever? <laughs> <laughs> well, if, I think well, yes, the, ex- the explanation of how I've done so many different things, and people often observe, you know, I've done so many different things different 
different areas of study and so on. The, the reason is I think I'm just interested in lots of things. Mm -hmm. So I just, I just follow up my interests. And I'm never content to, as it were, read what someone else thinks about something and not get into it myself. Mm -hmm. uh, so all through my career, I've been going into different, different areas and, and finding connections between them, which people don't necessarily find if they're, if they're rather more narrowly focused. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a challenge. It's a challenge yeah. to, um, to, to, to work in that way. Well, in case some uh, people in my audience might not know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Um, yes. Um, I, I suppose that the roots of my career are, first of all, an interest in history, because I did, um, I did my degrees, actually, in, in Cambridge in, in history, not in theology. Um, I've had a very good training in historical method, which I think is very useful for biblical studies. Um, that, that's one route. The other route is simply my own Christian faith and my own desire to, um, to think, think about it and think, think it through and so on. So the two kind of came together in, in my career. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but it wasn't really sort of planned by me. It, it just came about like that. Uh, I can relate when I was in high school finishing up, I ended up going to Bible college because I frankly didn't know much else to do other than oh. the Bible. And mm -hmm. while there I discovered apologetics kind of by accident as it were and boom, everything was set from that point on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, we're talking a bit about Bart Ehrman today, first off, and he's written this book, Jesus Before the Gospels. Now, what, this is a preview, what are your thoughts on the book, which you've obviously read. I mean, what, what did you think about it? Well, um, it's, it's not unexpected. I mean, a lot of things he says are what one would expect him to say. Um, the, the, the special element in it, um, he claims to be the study of memory. Hmm. Um, so he um, has material about psychological research on memory and so forth. Um, my, my feeling about that is that he is... Um, it, it's, it's, it's useful to put that stuff out there, but I think he is, um, he's far too generalizing about memory. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem about memory is how, how reliable is it? And you can't give a straightforward yes or no answer to that. Uh, memory can be very reliable. Memory can be very fallible and get things quite wrong. Mm -hmm. so, so you have to ask what sort of things are remembered well, in what circumstances they are remembered well, um, you, you really have to get beyond this generalizing talk of whether memory is reliable or not. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to produce examples of memory being very unreliable. Mm -hmm. uh, the question, if you're thinking about the Gospels, um, the question is, do those examples parallel the kind of situation or the kind of memories that you're dealing with in the Gospels? Mm -hmm. Now, when... I was reading at the start of his book, I was pretty stunned when he talked about how few New Testament scholars have interacted with work on memory in relation to the New Testament. I was just looking at saying, most every New Testament scholar I know has interacted to some degree with memory. Uh, I mean, do, do you think this is an area that New Testament scholars really haven't dealt with? Well, there are different approaches to memory, aren't there? Yeah. Um, there is the research that's done in cognitive psychology, and, mm -hmm. and there's now a, a very large amount of research done, scientific research on memory. Now, I think it's, I, I think it's true that in my Jesus and the eyewitnesses, 
I was actually the first person to bring, bring that material mm-hmm. into discussion of the Gospels and Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and a few people have done that since, but it's, uh, it's, it's a kind of, it's a specialist area in itself. You know, it takes quite some time to, to find your way into that field um, and understand it and, you know, make reliable um, conclusions from it. Um, that that's one area of memory. The area of memory in which more New Testament scholars, I think, are engaging now is what's known as social memory. Mm-hmm. And that's more of a sort of theory about memory. Um, and, you know, it, it's about the way in which um, retelling our memories. And it, it's not so much, it, it's of course not, it's, it's about a, a social memory um, as distinct from a, from a personal memory. So um, it's extending the sense of memory beyond what <laughs> I remember um, individually to what a society remembers. So you might talk about, um, I don't know, America's memory of Abraham Lincoln. It's mm-hmm. that kind of historic memory by a society. Um, now, whether that's relevant to the Gospels or how far that might be relevant to the Gospels, of course, is, is, is questionable, but that's a whole area that has come, come into discussion. And Bart actually takes up both of these to some extent. When Craig Evans was here recently, just this month, for a debate with Richard Carey, I had a chance to get to spend some time talking with him before and then. We talked a little bit about Urban's book, and he was telling me that, he said, you know, the thing is, memory studies today that are about the cognitive memory that you spoke of, the individualized memory and such, you said, it's like comparing apples and oranges. You can't really compare what he thinks are the collectivist memory to an individual memory. It just doesn't work. No, uh, you're using memory in two different senses. Yeah. In, in those two ways, yes. I mean, actually, in a sense, what people mean by social memory mm-hmm. is what biblical scholars have always meant by tradition. Mm-hmm. Um Traditions are passed down, you know, in, in society, in groups, in communities, um, but they, they're not—they're not a memory of having actually oneself be involved in something. They're, so, they're social, but anything. So, so in some social memories is, is another word for tradition, I think. Now, Ehrman really likes to, in his writings, compare the transmission of the stories of the Gospels to a sort of telephone game. Where we, yes. where we know that you say one thing in one person's ear, they whisper it all the way around, and when it comes out, it's absolutely hysterical. And they say, saying, where so-and-so hears a story, men may tell it to their cousin, who tells it to their mother, who tells it to the person they buy from, who tells it to their brother, etc. By the end, the stories change radically. I mean, that, do you think that's a fair representation of what's going on? Well, um, I think I'd make two answers to that. Okay. My, my own book, argues that the contents of the Gospels actually come fairly directly from the eyewitnesses. Mm-hmm. So one is talk. I mean, I think one of the Gospels is actually written by an eyewitness. Um, I think, for example, Mark's Gospel is, as early church tradition after the New Testament claimed, Mark's Gospel is um, mainly based upon the teaching of Peter. So you've got Peter, the eyewitness, and Mark, the evangelist, so, so you, you know, there's, you're no, no more distant than that from the eyewitness uh, sources of, of, of these um, stories and sayings of Jesus. Um, so the, nor- the normal picture in New Testament scholarship, 
certainly is that the Gospels are products of oral tradition. So that the contents of the Gospels, you know, have been through any number of minds and mouths before they reach the evangelist who wrote them in the Gospel. Um, I'm actually challenging that whole model. I don't think there are many stages in the mm-hmm. process. Uh, I think in many cases the uh, evangelists were in direct touch with the eyewitnesses or maybe once removed, but mm-hmm. I don't think one is really dealing with oral tradition. <laughs> so my view is that actually what we've got in the Gospels is not oral tradition, but oral history. Um, and oral history is um, a, a, a branch of history which people pursue nowadays. Um, it involves uh, thinking about relatively recent history, contemporary history, interviewing people who participated it in it, you know, finding out how they experienced it, what they thought about it and so on. So I, I think uh, if you think of the Gospels as based pretty immediately on eyewitnesses who were present and involved in the story of Jesus, um, then the nearest modern counterpart to that is oral history. And I distinguish that from oral tradition. Oral tradition means something has gone down across generations. You know, usually studies of oral tradition are studies of material that's been passed down who knows how many generations. Um, mm. Of course, all sorts of things do happen in, in that case. Mm. Um, but my other answer, however, is, is this. If one does want to stick with an oral tradition model of how the material um, uh, came to the evangelists, um, then I think there are a variety of ways of in which oral tradition worked um, and worked. So I mean, there have been many studies of oral tradition in various societies around the world. And it's quite clear that if a society actually wants to preserve traditions faithfully, um, there are ways of doing so. Um, uh, so. So it's not just a, you know, the way in which a bit of gossip might go around among friends and, and so forth. Um, this is tradition which which people are which people really value and they want to get it right. If you do want to get it right, you do something better than the Chinese whispers thing. <clears throat> yeah, <clears throat> Mike Lacona has told me that he was once giving an account of the whole telephone game Chinese whispers, and he said he had a, a teacher come up to him afterwards and he said, you know, my children. In the classroom, we play that game every year. And first time, it's absolutely hysterical. It comes out. But then I tell him the second time, I said, if you don't get it right, we are not going to go out to recess today. Oh, and they yes. get it right every oh. single time. Yes, that, that's interesting. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. I, I, I think that's right. And I think what may well have happened in the in the early churches um, is that churches would have uh, people whose job it was mm-hmm. to be the guardians of the tradition. And this often happens in in, in oral societies, um, so that there'll be someone who's responsible for preserving the traditions accurately. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, if a whole community of people have heard these traditions repeated, um, they would know, um, they would hold the guardian uh, to... Um, to to the, to what they remembered of, of the tradition, so it's it's something much more than uh, just you know people passing uh, gossip around, as I said, and and Bart does represent it as as a sort of just like gossip, you know, mm-hmm. ca- casually <laughs> telling telling stories to people. Um, uh, it's, it's quite quite different, but I would stress that I don't. Although I think oral tradition obviously was happening in the early church, this this is how. 
um, people in the churches that Paul writes to, for example, um, uh, knew the gospel material. I don't think it's the explanation of how the gospels themselves came to be written. Mm. I think uh, I think that's a matter of close contact with the eyewitnesses. Mm. And when you were talking about the people who were in charge of tradition, I'm, I'm thinking that uh, Brent Sandy and John Wharton in their book, The Lost War of Scripture, spoke about tradents, as yes. it were. These were people who would be the yes. key ones in. And what they said is that when you're telling the story, it was okay to have some minor variations on some small points and such, but the main thrust of the story had to stay the same. What I tell people is, if I had some like Mormon or Jehovah's Witnesses come by here, and I had a talk with them, I'd probably call my parents afterwards and tell them the story of how it went, but then I'd call my father-in-law afterwards, who's an apologist as well, and he'd hear a rather different story, though it'd still be the same story, because he knows the language a lot more. Yes. And it's that kind of thing that's going on. Yes, I, I think that's right. And I mean, something everyone can do, actually, is to look in a synopsis, you know, where you've got the parallel passages in the in the gospel set out side by side, and you can see the degree of variation between them. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you, you know, there is variation, as you, as you say, the, the details vary. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the, that's, as it were, the degree of variation that I think in the ancient world everybody expected if you're yeah. telling a story or if you're writing history. I mean, the other very interesting case is in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, we actually have an account of Paul's experience on the Damascus Road three times. Right. Luke tells us the story himself, and then twice he has Paul telling the story to, to later audiences. And all three are different. They're, they're actually slightly contradictory. It's very difficult to reconcile them. So what is Luke doing? I mean, Luke, Luke knows what he's doing. He's not doing this by accident. Um, Luke knows that that's how, that's what happens to stories and, and that people aren't bothered by that. So in a, in a way, he's being realistic by giving you three versions which differ a little bit um, because that's what happens when people tell stories. And Luke doesn't think that, you know, any of those three versions is inaccurate. It's within the range of accuracy that, that people expected and, and tolerated. Uh, I like how E.P. Sanders has pretty much said about it, basically. One thing we need to realize, Luke was not an idiot. He did not <laughs> look and think, oh my gosh, I, I never realized these three stories contradict each other. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it's very instructive, I think, and, and it shows. I mean, of course, um, ancient people were more used to oral telling of important stories than we are. You know, they didn't have newspapers, they didn't have any of the modern media. Um, and so there are, there is more in the way of agreed conventions mm. as to how you tell historical stories. Um, and so people, I think, would have a sense of, uh, this is the extent to which you might expect a good storyteller to vary the story. Mm. Uh, but this is the core of the story that you would expect him to get right. Mm-hmm. If, he didn't get, if he didn't get the core narrative right, then you, you'd be uh, accusing him of distorting it or something. The, the other very interesting thing about the Gospels, however, if you look at the synopsis, you know, people look carefully at the, at the parallel accounts in the various Gospels side by side, you will find that usually there is more variation in the stories about Jesus than there is in the sayings of Jesus. And, and it does look as though 
um, you know, the, 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 the details of the way you tell the story, you know, that there is this acceptable vari- variation. Um, I mean, another good example is the story of Peter's denials. Um, and, uh, you, you know, there have been uh, very fundamentalist people who, who say that, you know, every word of this has to be accurate. And so they come out with Peter denying Jesus six times. Yes. <laughs> in, in order to, you know, do absolute justice to every detail in each of the accounts. Um, but you can see there actually how there's a, um, a permissible variation between the accounts, which I don't think ancient people would have worried about at all. Mm. But uh, and you see that in the stories about Jesus. When you turn to the sayings of Jesus, there are variations, and there are clearly cases where uh, the evangelist um, has interpreted the saying for us. You know, he's added some words of explanation or, or things like that. There are significant variations. But on the whole, there's much less variation uh, when when they're telling the sto- telling the sayings of Jesus and when they're telling the stories, um, and I think that's that's due to the, you know get, getting the, the sayings right, um, it, you know is re- really really important in a, in a different way from the details of the uh, story, um, uh, and of course you know there are all those little sayings of Jesus that that, that are designed to be memorable. Uh, many are called, but few are chosen. You, you, you can't really get that wrong. It's just, uh, you know, it sticks in your mind once you know it. Um, and Jesus, I think, designed a lot of his teaching to, to be in a memorable form um, so that the kind of format, um, another one is, you know, the one who saves his life will lose it and the one who loses his life will save it. You know, it's mm-hmm. a carefully constructed, memorable saying. And it, it, then if you look at the parables, you know, you do get variation of detail in the parables because they are stories. But the, 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 the gist of the, of, of the, of the parable is, is kind of, it, it's very memorable. You know, no one who's heard the story of the Good Samaritan or the story of the prodigal son ever really forgets that story or gets right. it wrong. You know, it's very memorable kind of story. Mm-hmm. So I, just, I think Jesus knew how to present his teaching in memorable form. I'd like to go back to something you said at the start of that also when you talk about how they didn't have newspapers and things of that sort because I've seen Gary Habermas give talks you know, before and he, he's been asked the question in the audience and this is when it comes up he said, well geez, if this kind of story was so important why didn't they just write it down immediately? Uh-huh. And I, I've said because actually, believe it or not the oral tradition was more reliable to them and with oral tradition it was free, it was quick, it was reliable, and it reached everyone with the written word. It was expensive, it took a long time, and it could only reach people who were capable of reading. Which one do you think you're going to go with? <laughs> well, reach people capable of reading. Of course, um, even when the Gospels were written, mm-hmm. uh, most, most members of the Christian communities were illiterate, but they heard them read. Yeah. Um, uh, and the Gospels, in that sense, were designed, like a lot of ancient literature, designed yeah. to be read aloud mm-hmm. because they weren't meant only for literate people. They were meant for people in general. And, you know, it's a common... Uh, I, I mean, I like to talk about the kind of culture in which Jesus and the, and the disciples and the early Christians lived as an oral culture in which texts were very important. Mm-hmm. So it's not a purely oral culture. It's an oral mm-hmm. culture in which texts are important. Uh, and so um, people, I think... People, very, very ordinary people, exchanged letters. Uh, they couldn't read or write, but they went to the scribe and dictated it so that they could have their letter written, mm-hmm. and then they get someone to read it to them when the when the when the person who wrote, you know, the correspondent wrote back. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so people and, and you know it's, it is a full of inscriptions um it's a world in which there's a lot of um written text um and in which there are various ways in which those written texts are accessible to non-literary people mm-hmm. um so i i wouldn't bring in the uh, the idea that most people were illiterate as a reason why the Gospels weren't written um, sooner. Um, the, the other thing, of course, is we don't know how early there might have been um, some Gospel-type writings. Um, there may have been, you know, collections of stories about Jesus, uh, c- collections of Jesus' parables, you know, small collections of material um, from, a, from a very early date. It's, it's quite possible. Um and of course, these things didn't survive because once you've got a complete gospel, you don't really need those anymore. You've got something much better. So there may well have been uh, sort of small. Uh, and Luke, of course, says that many people had tried to do this before he had. Mm-hmm. He did. Um, and um, it's the sort of thing you say in the preface to historical work. So you know, it, it may be sort of it may be slightly. Are you still there? Yes. Oh, right. My mm-hmm. my screen went blank. Um, um, yes, it's the sort of thing you say in a historical preface, but I, but I don't think um, I don't think he was just pretending. You know, I, th- I think there must have been probably more than Mark's Gospel around um, mm. some other uh, collections of gospel material that he knew. Mm. Now, when we we look at Berman's case on memory, also, I think we need to dive into that a bit too. He he spends a lot of time talking about Papias now. Yes. My audience, in case you don't know, can you tell us a bit about who Papias is and what we know about him? Um, he was uh, a bishop of the church in Hierapolis in Asia Minor mm-hmm. um, in the early part of the second century. We don't exactly know the date of his work, but it may be about 110, 120, something like that. Um, and we only have these fragments. I mean, it's very frustrating. If I could wish for an ancient work that we that has been lost and, and wish for it, to, you know, for it to be dug up in Egypt or something, I would go for Pages' work. It's absolutely, it's absolutely fascinating. So we only have these few fragments. And we have a couple of fragments from his preface where he's talking about the Gospels or how the Gospels came into being. Um, and so we have a comment on Mark, famous comment on Mark, which says that Mark acted as Peter's interpreter and uh, he wrote down the stories as he had heard them from Peter um, and he excuses the fact that Mark doesn't have the material in order he says uh, because Mark wasn't an eyewitness he had these stories presumably he means he had these stories as kind of individual stories from Peter mm-hmm. and so the order in which he put them together um, was doing the best he could without having been an eyewitness um, so Papias is kind of a bit um, anxious to excuse Mark for what Papias thinks is not, not the best order of the material in Mark's Gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he says something very obscure about Matthew, which uh, people interpret in very different ways. He says, I think, uh, something like Matthew uh, wrote the sayings of the Lord, the oracles of the Lord, in order, and everyone translated them as they will. Um, quite what he means there is, is debatable. Uh, I, I think he again is excusing Matthew's gospel, the Greek gospel he has, um, for what he thinks is not the right order of material. And of course, Matthew's order is not terribly different from Mark's. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
what he's really doing, I think, is comparing both of them with John's gospel, um, which he thinks does have everything in the right order. So he's got to, as it were, explain why the order of events differs in the various gospels. Um, but since Matthew was an eyewitness, he can't say, well, Matthew got it wrong. Matthew ought to know. And so what he says is, well, Matthew got it right in his original Hebrew, but the people who translated his gospel into Greek um, mucked about with the order. Um, that's my suggestion. But mm. it is very, you know, it's very obscure. It's difficult to be sure what he meant. I have heard about people like D.A. Carson and Daniel Barris, who are extremely skilled in Greek, have looked at Matthew's Gospel and said it doesn't read like it's translation Greek, though. Absolutely true. Yes. Now, I can't believe that Matthew's Gospel is a translation. Huh. Um, moreover, if one thinks that Matthew used Mark, um, as most people do, um, you know, Matthew takes over large portions of Mark. So that material could never have been uh, in anything but Greek. He's taken it over. You know, it's, mm. it's clearly from the same Mark and text in Greek that we have. Mm. So, no, I don't think it's credible that, that Matthew's gospel is a translation. Um, I, I think that I think that Papias sort of guessed that. He, he, you know, he's, he's looking for a way of excusing Matthew's gospel for not being in the right order. And this is his, his attempt to explain that. But I don't think he knew that there was a Hebrew Gospel of Matthew. It is very confusing, because later on in the early church, in the 3rd, 4th century, people talk about a Gospel of Matthew in Hebrew or in Aramaic. It's not always easy to tell whether they mean Hebrew or Aramaic, but one of the two. And there clearly was such a Gospel in the 4th century. Um, the scholar Jerome uh, evidently looked at it and sometimes tells us you know, little fragments of, of of what it said, um, but we don't have it, and uh, it, it, it can't be our Greek Matthew. So, I mean, that's just a tantalising problem about early gospel uh, material. You know, what, what was this Hebrew gospel that, that was apparently still being used by, by Aramaic-speaking Hebrew-reading uh, Jewish Christians um, as late as the 4th century? Now, when you were saying that Matthew used Mark Verus, you said Matthew was an eyewitness, if we're talking about the same Matthew that's described in the Gospel. And some people will often say, where Jesus, Matthew was an eyewitness, why would he use Mark, who wasn't an eyewitness? And my finger that has always been, where Mark is a testimony of Peter, and Peter was one of the inner three who would see things that Matthew never saw. I mean, what, what do you think about that? Yes, that's true. I... I, I I, I'm not sure what I think about Matthew's connection with the gospel. You know, mm. I think Matthew must be somewhere behind the gospel, mm. um, but not necessarily its author. You know, mm. maybe some of the distinctive traditions, some of the material that's not from Mark, uh, comes from Matthew. Mm. And so, you know, the, the title "Gospel According to Matthew" mm. doesn't necessarily mean that Matthew wrote it. It could mean that he's the source of it, the authority right. behind it. Um, so that, that that's my guess, but I, I've never been able to, as it were, pin that down any more precisely. Mm. Uh, I don't know precisely what was Matthew responsible for in the gospel that bears its bears his name. Mm. Um, and uh, I sometimes said I find Matthew mm. the most puzzling of the four gospels. Mm. Um, and uh, people sometimes say about Jesus and the eyewitnesses that I say a lot about Mark and a lot about John and some things about Luke and very little about Matthew. And uh, I, 
I just didn't have much to say about Matthew when I wrote the book. Maybe mm-hmm. I should remedy that sometime. Well, for those interested, maybe that will be because you do have a 10th anniversary coming out soon, don't you? Ah, uh, yes. But I've already written the extra chapters for that mm-hmm. certain new edition of... They're doing a new edition of Jesus and the Eyewitnesses mm-hmm. that will come out later this year. Mm-hmm. And I've written three extra chapters for it, uh, extra 40,000 words. Um, but no, I, I, don't, I don't take the issue of Matthew any further in, in that context. And there are some people that think that it could be that when we talk about the gospel written in Hebrew, that maybe we're talking about the document known as Q, and that Matthew was the author of that. What do you think yeah. about that possibility? Well, I have fairly recently um, decided that Q didn't exist. Hmm. I mean, Q is a hypothetical hypothetical document, as you know, Um, it's used to explain the fact that Matthew and Luke both have closely parallel material, which is not in Mark. So the material, obviously, which they took from Mark, you can explain why they're parallel in Matthew and Luke. Why are they parallel in other material? And sometimes very very word-for-word parallels. I mean, more than you could explain by oral tradition. There were very close word-for-word parallels between Matthew and and Luke. Mm -hmm. So the two solutions to that is a been going around um, are the Q hypothesis that they ha- they both used another gospel source that had this material in it, um, or what's known as the Farrer hypothesis, because it goes back to a man called Austin Farrer, which is that Luke um, knew Matthew. Um, so Luke used Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel and took the so-called Q material from Matthew. Mm-hmm. Um, now, logically, there's another possibility Mm-hmm. Uh, which is that Matthew knew Luke um, and took the Q material from Luke. And I've come to think that's the more probable one. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for that. Um, and a few people have been arguing this recently. I found them convincing. Um, so I'm, I'm tentatively going with that. Um, it's the sort of thing I like to have in mind. And, you know, when I'm studying the gospel for one purpose or another, I can, I can think, you know, does, does this passage work? Does that hypothesis makes sense of what's happening in, in this passage where Matthew is parallel to Luke or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, uh, I, I'm holding it as a bit of an experimental hypothesis, but I think there's a lot to be said for it. And, you know, I, I, mean, I, I, was, I was convinced of Q for a very long time, but um, I think there are real problems with Q. And one of the problems comes when you try to envisage what sort of document was Q. And people usually say that Q is a, is a collection of sayings. But actually the Q material isn't just a collection of sayings. It, it begins with a narrative about John the Baptist. And it has, it has the narrative of Jesus uh, tempted in the wilderness. Um, so it's got some, as it were, chronological <coughs> narrative material. But then the narrative peters out and you've just got sayings. So it doesn't, doesn't make sense. So if it were just a collection of sayings, you know, that, that makes sense as, as, a, as an ancient text, the sort of thing you might do. But how do these narratives, including not just anecdotes, but chronological narrative, um, it, it doesn't make sense as a text. Um, so that's what made me think again about Q. Well, I've actually been skeptical of Q for uh-huh. quite a while as well. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm curious, I haven't got to read it yet, but has a Mark Goodacre's writings had any influence on that? Well, yes, Mark is an advocate of Luke knew Matthew. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the, of those two alternatives, and mm-hmm. um, the Luke, that's the, that's the so-called Farrah hypothesis, um, 
And that has been the main alternative to Q. Mm. Um, Mark Goodacre, Mark Goodacre, actually, a lot of what he does has not convinced me. Um, and I do find the idea that <clears throat> Matthew U. Luke um, implausible for various reasons. I don't think it worked at all well. And I think I hang on to Q for longer than I might have done because the alternative seemed to be the Farrow hypothesis, mm. which Mark Goodacre uh, advocates. Um, and then I came to see there's this other possibility of Matthew's use of Luke. Um, which, as it were, doesn't have the difficulties I found in the in the Farrow hypothesis. But my, the the the, um, the point I just made about Q doesn't make sense as a document. Um, Mark Goodacre does say that, and I did get that from him. And reading mm. just one one passage of his about that uh, was what kind of um, was a sort of turning point in my thinking. For all interested, if you want to go back and check the archives of our show. On in 2014, back on February 1st of that year, we did I did my interview of Mark Goodacre. We talked about the Gospel of Thomas, and we included some talk about Q. So if you want some more information about his views, you can go there. And now there are some people who say we shouldn't take Papias too seriously because Eusebius described him as a man of little intelligence. What do you think about that? I think Eusebius simply didn't like some of Papias' ideas. Mm-hmm. Papias was a millenarian, he thought. There was a millennium coming on earth. And a lot of Christians in Papias' time in the second century uh, were millenarians, especially in the area in which Papias lived. Um, And Eusebius was fervently anti-millenarian. And, um, I mean, Eusebius doubted uh, the canonicity of the book of Revelation. Um, And he actually quotes he quotes a passage in um, Papias' preface mm-hmm. where Papias speaks about two different Johns, two different Johns who were both disciples of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, seized on by Eusebius, who says, well, one of these must have written the Gospel, the other must have written the Book of Revelation. So the Book of Revelation does not come from the Apostle. Mm-hmm. Um, so Eusebius has his own very strong views about the origins of early Christian literature um, and about eschatology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he just doesn't like what Papias says. Um, I think probably I think probably Eusebius would have said that about being, you know, a man of very little brain um, about any millenarian. He just mm. so despised millenarian belief. So I think we've got to take account of Eusebius's prejudices, um, and also the fact that Eusebius quotes Papias extremely selectively. I think he picks out things that he uh, finds useful. Um, rather than necessarily everything. And that's why Eusebius uh, doesn't have Papias say anything about John's Gospel. Um, uh, whereas I think that in those passages about the Gospels, Papias is, they, they actually make sense if you think that Papias is com- comparing Matthew and Mark with John. Um, but Eusebius didn't like what Papias said about John, apparently. So he leaves that out. Um, we, we, we have to take account of how selective and, as it were, deliberately selective Eusebius is in these comments. Yeah. And I, I can't but think when we talk about how he and how he says that about Pippius that when you were describing him was considering that the church fathers by most of our students today would be considered very, very rough with how they spoke about their opponents and I just immediately thought how Tertullian described Marcion as someone who had who uh, has a pumpkin for a brain. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, I mean, they, 
controversy was, as you say, rougher in those days. Yes. Just, they weren't polite to each other. Yes, yes, they, they would put our modern-day political debates to shame. Indeed, yes, although, although modern-day political debates are getting worse in that respect, I would say. <laughs> yeah. So, so, some of the stuff in the recent American election campaigns have been pretty nasty, haven't they? Uh, yes, yes, I prefer to not think about those. <laughs> um, now, something else that Ehrman brings out about PPS that is pretty interesting is that usually we'll have a, a lot of the projects over here where talk about the reconciliation of the accounts of the death of Judas, the one in Matthew where he goes out and hangs himself, and yeah. then one in Acts where he falls in a field and bursts headlong, and then all of a sudden, here comes Papias with a third one, where yeah. he's apparently bloated to a huge size, he can't pass between walls, things of that sort, and what is going on here, especially if Pepius thinks Matthew is an eyewitness? Why would he go against Matthew's account of what happened to Judas? Well, I do think that Papias, you see, I think Papias um, made his own collection of stories about Jesus and sayings of Jesus mm-hmm. back in something like the 80s. Um, uh, you know, what he says about uh, collecting traditions about Jesus mm-hmm. must go back to a period uh, when there were still eyewitnesses around. So so he made his own collection, probably before he ever read Matthew. Um, mm. So in in a sense, and, and I think, you know, his his lost book, sadly lost book, uh, was full of uh, lots of traditions about Jesus, stories and sayings. Um, so I, I think Petrus would um, easily um, prefer, you know, the account that he'd somehow or other uh, picked up. Mm-hmm. to one that he later found in, in Matthew's Gospel. I, mean, I think he was very confident about his own uh, process of, of collecting reliable material. Um, and it turns out, presumably, that, that this story about Judas is not very credible. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of stock motif, I believe. I mean, I think there are other stories from the ancient world where this kind of thing happens to, to villains. Mm-hmm. So it's the kind of thing you might think about Jesus, Judas if you were, you know, um, making up a, 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 an appropriate sort of way that Judas might have died. So I don't think it's very surprising that mm. there's a bit of legendary material that Pepe has got hold of. Um, but um, I don't think it tells against his, um, his, uh, his view of the other Gospels. So what you're kind of saying is you think that Papias had these traditions before he read the Gospels and so he was just mind them down and then later on he looks and says, oh, that's what happened. Okay, he just never got around to correcting it. Yes, I, uh, well, I, I don't think he never got around to correcting it. I, I think he, he would simply be more inclined to believe the tradition he had picked up than, mm. than the tradition in the Gospel. Um, you see, he makes a great point when he talks about when he was gathering traditions about Jesus of how he um, got, he, he didn't, of course, um, speak directly to eyewitnesses, but he did um, quiz uh, disciples of the eyewitnesses who who, um, who he met in Hierapolis. Um, uh, so he, he, you know, he was, and he presents himself a, as a historian, you know, using good historical method to interview people. Um, and so, so he he's quite confident in the fact that um, you know his traditions do come reliably from eyewitnesses. So I, I think he could quite easily, um, you know, simply thought, well. My source has got this right, and Matthew's gospel has got it wrong. Mm-hmm. But but when we look back, we'd say, where well, chances are, if Papias fought that, it's more likely he got it wrong, and Matthew and or Luke got it right. 
Yes, I, th- I think that's true. And I mean, to us, I think that particular account in PPS does look legendary, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so I think that's a deciding. But it's, it's an interesting issue. And why did the early church fathers, um, and, and a lot of people who, who were writing in the early period, you know, up to Eusebius, uh, would have known PPS, and a few people quote the odd little bit of PPS, but, but very little. Now, if, if PPS was full of all sorts of traditions about Jesus that didn't get into our four Gospels, um, you'd have thought that people like Clement of Alexandria and all these people would have been really interested and, and quote a lot of them. And I suspect that most of PPS's content consisted of traditions that were very close to the ones in our Gospels, um, so that his own tapping of oral sources um, actually came out with, uh, you know, very very much the same material as we have in our Gospels. Mm. Um, and so when the Church Fathers quote PPS, they quote the few examples where PPS says something different that we can't find uh, in the canonical Gospels. Because there's really not much point in saying, hey, here he is there, he already agrees with what we say, you want to quote what's different that people haven't heard before. Well, well, well exactly. And of course, um, you know, if you've got uh, if you've got a story or a saying about saying of Jesus in one of the Gospels, uh, the fathers would certainly regard that as a better authority than, than Papias. So Papias becomes redundant. Um, but Papias is interesting when here, here and there, you know, he does say uh, some, something different. But it, it, if I'm right about that, it's kind of unfair to Papias to, to fix on few bits of Papias we've got. Yeah. And say, oh well, Papias, you know, got, got everything wrong. He's full of legends and so on. Mm-hmm. It's at those particular pits where he says something unlikely, the ones that um, got picked up because they were different. Yeah, could it be that, for instance, Papias saw Judas as this hated, evil figure in his time? Then he reads Matthew's account or Luke's account, and you know, that's pretty much just straightforward, kind of bland and such. And you think, hmm. I think I like my story better. I like I like Judas suffering. Yes, yes, I think that may well be the case. And, and Judas, of course, was really demonized in the mm. Christian tradition, so it's not surprising. And actually, you know, if you read Matthew's Gospel, um, trying to put aside anything you might think about Judas otherwise, you could read Matthew's Gospel, Judas comes across as rather a sympathetic creature, a character, you know, tragic, yeah. um, rather than villainous. Yeah. Uh, so... Um, uh, you know, I, I, I think you're, you're right. I mean, it may just be that uh, maybe I preferred an account that um, mm. showed showed that uh, maybe showed that Judas really got really did get his comeuppance. You know, uh, made a really bad end. Yeah, Ehrman also explained how Papias has a tradition where you're talking about grapes being so abundant, and each one saying, "Bless the Lord for me, bless the Lord for me." That this supposedly comes from Jesus and he says that people really really don't think that kind of tradition came from Jesus and what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean it's very interesting um, Irenaeus you know the great um, uh, early church writer from the end of the second century um, he took that saying very seriously and uh, again he's a millenarian like Papias and he quotes it to um, substantiate his millenarian belief going back to Jesus mm-hmm. uh, it does actually have parallels in Jewish literature, so I, I think it's a kind of um, picture of the paradise of the age to come that was going around in mm-hmm. Jewish literature. Uh, it's actually perfectly possible that, that Jesus himself picked it up from, uh, you know, 
Jesus sometimes says things that um, other Jewish teachers were saying. Um, he can make use of images and parables and things that were around in the culture. So it's not impossible. Jesus, yeah. Jesus himself picked it up. What I think is most likely, actually, is that it's a kind of elaboration of what Jesus does say at the Last Supper in the Gospels, mm-hmm. which is about drinking wine new in the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. But he says, I will not drink wine until I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Um, and so uh, this purported saying of Jesus, you know, sort of fills that out as this picture of miraculous uh, um, wine harvests uh, vintage um, in the in the age. Mm. So I think it may be a, an elaboration of the saying of Jesus. Mm. Now, in light of all these, though, Ehrman would look and say, where Jesus, when we see this information going on, Pippius is certainly not reliable as a source, and yet guess who our source is who says Matthew is the one who wrote or is in your position behind the gospel, where it's Papias. If we can't trust Papias here, why should we trust him there? Well, I, I, I don't actually put much reliance on Papias uh, mm-hmm. in, in what he says about Matthew. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I think there are real problems in what he says about Matthew. And I think he may have had reason to sort of guess that that was how Matthew originated, the gospel originated. Um, but that doesn't necessarily um, disqualify what he says about Mark, uh, which, is, which is, I think, much more important uh, because there, there are no particular problems in what he says about Mark. You know, it's perfectly credible um, that Mark was a companion of Peter, Peter's interpreter, um, and uh, wrote down the gospel mainly on the basis of Peter's teaching. Um, but in the book, what I do is to, to um, talk about what Papias meant when he said that, uh, so got quite clear in our minds what Papias was saying about the origins of Mark's gospel, and then to ask, well, does the gospel itself uh, live up to that uh, account? Are there other reasons within the gospel itself for thinking that, that this material comes from Peter? And so my case is actually based on both the internal evidence of the gospel itself and Papias' testimony. And it's the, the fact that the two match up uh, that I think is impressive. Uh, if the gospel didn't look in the least like Peter's testimony, then, of course, one would uh, be dubious about Papia. Um, mm-hmm. But actually it does. Um, so I spend quite a lot of time in the book showing how, uh, for one thing, how the character of Peter really dominates the gospel of Mark, uh, you know, apart from Jesus himself, of course, Peter is much the most um, visible character in the gospel. Um, and if people, you see, I think that people reading or hearing the gospels would actually expect them to be based on eyewitness testimony. Um, and that, that's an important uh, sort of presupposition, um, which comes of, out of, I think, the way the New Testament talks about the importance of eyewitnesses, um, and also about what people thought about uh, history in the ancient world. You know, good history uh, should be written within living memory of its subject because it should have been possible for the author to have interviewed eyewitnesses uh, if he wasn't there himself, which is even better. Um, but they would expect a gospel to be based on eyewitnesses. So they'd be kind of looking out for, you know, who is the eyewitness testimony uh, behind Mark's gospel? And they would realize that the first 
and incredible people will, will be disciples of Jesus, of course. So the first disciple of Jesus who's, who appears at all in Mark's Gospel is Peter. Mm. And he appears very emphatically. Um, it's the story of the call of Peter and Andrew. And Mark talks about um, Simon and Simon's brother Andrew. You didn't have to say that. You could say Simon and his brother Andrew. Um, he repeats the name Simon for emphasis. Um, and Peter is also the last disciple to be named in the gospel, mm-hmm. in, in the message of the angels to the women in chapter 16. So you've got Peter is sort of prominent at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, um, referred to at the end, and in between that, um, you've got uh, you know, uh, Peter's presence in the narrative. He's virtually always there in the narrative. He's always there until you get near the end. And this is actually important. Um, has, Mark has the narrative of Peter denying Jesus, of course, mm-hmm. but then Peter actually drops out of the story. And the most important things of all, one might suppose, are the ones that then happen. <coughs> Crucifixion of Jesus, burial in the tomb, discovery of the empty tomb. Peter's not, Peter's not a witness of those things. So what does Mark do? He highlights very clearly the role of the women disciples of Jesus, who are there at the cross, they're there at the burial, they're there at the empty tomb. And he keeps saying that the women saw and observed and, and noticed. Um, he, 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 the women in Mark hardly do anything except watch and see. So it's quite clear, I think, that their role is that of eyewitnesses uh, to these terribly significant events. So in other words, if Peter is the main eyewitness, at the point where Peter, Peter's witness fails because he's just not in the story any longer, at that point, Mark brings in these other eyewitnesses um, to, to, as it were, fill the, fill the gap. Mm. So, uh, <coughs> when you're talking about uh, what uh, Ehrman does of Papias, I think this is kind of like a pinch of that Ehrman, unfortunately, he seems to have. Uh, Craig Evans has described Ehrman as being on a flight from fundamentalism, where a lot of times it can be all or nothing. And I saw this several times when I was going through Jesus before the Gospels, where he'd say, these traditions are not verbatim traditions. And I'd, I'd think about it every time I think, they're not supposed to be yes. verbatim traditions. Yes. And yes. You, you've given sermons before, I've given sermons, and no doubt many times when you go to a new place, you could give a sermon that you've given before. I've done it, and no two sermons are going to be exactly alike. Even though a message is going to be the same. And it's very doubtful that something like, say, the Sermon on the Mount was only given one time. And even if, that, if that's a sermon, that sermon can be read in about 15 minutes. So there's got to be some abbreviation going on. Exactly. You know, I once actually witnessed a performance of the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, someone actually kind of performing it, mm-hmm. uh, as as you might imagine Jesus would have done, it, if that's the text of the sermon. Mm-hmm. And I soon realized it actually doesn't work if you try and perform it, because it's much too dense. Um, you know, it moves so quickly from one parable, one saying to another, and you don't really have time to grasp what's getting going on. So I think that the teaching of Jesus that we have in the Synoptic Gospels um, is actually the material um, in which Jesus summed up his message in memorable form. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of the material which uh, people took away with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, ordinary listeners would be able to take it away with them and, and remember it and reflect on it. Disciples could remember it. Um, but I think uh, I don't think Jesus could have 
talked only in these short stories, very short stories, most of them, and these kind of epigrammatic sayings, just kind of two or three liners often, um, he must have spoken more discursively and used these uh, sort of carefully composed bits of teaching um, as, as the, the sort of, uh, in order to kind of um, uh, in, uh, summarize, it's not quite what I want to, um, uh, you know, to um, caps- encapsulate, uh, encapsulate his message. Um, and naturally, when the evangelists get to writing a gospel, that's the material they've got. Um, and so to make, you know, so if you want to have a sermon that, that um, lasts over three chapters, as Matthew does, uh, it's got to be a compilation of these kind of encapsulated, uh, memorable um, parts of Jesus' teaching, because that's what was remembered. But I think Jesus himself would have used those as as encapsulations of something that he actually thought more discursively and more spontaneously about. How would this tie in then with, say, the Gospel of John, which does have those long discourses where the talk is so very, very different when Jesus talks about himself and never really mentions the kingdom of God. Um, yes. Well, I think, um, well, two things about that. One, on the kingdom of God, I think that um, Jesus in John's gospel actually uses the term eternal life or life as John's equivalent of kingdom of God. Um, and actually, if you look in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 9 uses the two terms kingdom of god and life or eternal life interchangeably um he talks about entering into life or entering the kingdom um so john isn't inventing that language it goes back to jesus tradition but john i think wants to focus on um eternal life as the characteristic of the kingdom that he wants to emphasize so i think that's why jesus doesn't use kingdom of god in in the fourth gospel he uses eternal life instead um, and therefore, I think it's not true to say that Jesus in John talks about himself rather than about the kingdom of God, because he actually talks a great deal about eternal life uh, in, in the Gospel of John. Um, now, it's perfectly true. It's very interesting, I think, that John's narratives, uh, not John's narratives, his, his uh, discourses of Jesus, something like the Last Supper discourse, um, um, in a sense, are more like the way Jesus might have spoken, because they are longer there. And what you often find in John, actually, is if you look carefully in these long discourses, there are short sayings, some of them actually also in the Synoptic Gospels, some of them very like the sort of sayings of Jesus that we get in the Synoptic Gospels. And the discourses are sort of um, expansions and reflections on, the, on those key sayings. So I think I think there's a certain sense in which both the synoptics and John are artificial mm-hmm. in the way they represent Jesus' teaching. It had to be artificial. Um, the synoptics are artificial because they collect these key encapsulations of Jesus' teaching, uh, and they don't have him don't have him giving a three-hour sermon. You know, um, John on the other hand is more realistic in the sense that he gives these long discourses of Jesus. Um, but he doesn't have those long discourses of Jesus, um, you know, in the tradition or, or in his memory. I mean, you wouldn't remember, you wouldn't remember in detail something like the Last Supper discourse. What John remembers is important sayings of Jesus and the drift of Jesus' teaching 
Um, and so he develops it in, in his own words. Um, but in a sense, that's, that's artif- it's only artificial in a different way from the synoptics. Um, you can't, you, if you're going to write a gospel and represent the teaching of someone like Jesus, there's no way but that you, that there's no way of doing it except by being artificial. It's always mm-hmm. going to be artificial. Mm-hmm. You couldn't, you couldn't, you couldn't write a biography of a modern politician, um, and fill it with the sort of half hour, um, uh, lectures that they gave speeches, you know, um, you'd have to give an idea of the sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you might have some, uh, you know, um, uh, saying of that politician that everyone remembers and, and you, you, that would be a, a word for word, mm-hmm. uh, bit, but you, you couldn't actually, you couldn't actually reproduce the way a politician speaks. Mm-hmm. You could only represent it in, in a, in a biography. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to remind everyone that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and projects. We've got a fabulous program today. I'm interviewing Dr. Richard Borkham <coughs> on uh, his response to Jesus Before the Gospels and his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, which has a 10th anniversary edition coming out <laughs> later this year. But if you're listening next week, we're going to have Luke Cawley coming on. He's written an interesting book, The Myth of a Non-Christian. Let me talk about that. What does he mean by that? And I, I can tell you, it's nothing like universalism or anything like that, but it's an interesting read and one that really gets you thinking about evangelism a lot more. But that's next week. Now we're going to get back to our interview with Dr. Richard Borkham on uh, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. So I think it's time we probably develop a more positive case now. When you wrote Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, I was very surprised that one of the places that you began with was the listing of names in the ancient world. Uh, can you tell yes. us about that? Yes, I, I think names are interesting. I've done a lot of work on, on Jewish names in the ancient world, um, uh, which started with Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. I've done more work since. And it's uh, very interesting, you know. Uh, there are things that names can tell us that, that none of our other evidence can do. Um, and we also now have very good resources, particularly for Jewish names. Um, so that when I wrote Jesus and I was able to draw on a sort of database of Jewish names um, from the period around the New Testament, including the New Testament period, going on starting to further back. That's the way the information was presented. Um, uh, uh, but it's a database of about 3,000 Jewish people. So it's statistically very significant. Um, can, you, can you repeat that part about the database again? You broke up a little bit. Um, yes. There's a database um, of Jewish names, be more precise, the ones I'm talking about are Palestinian Jewish names. So it's mm-hmm. Jewish names used in Palestine. It's a database really of individuals bearing the names. So mm-hmm. you can, you, you know, you may have... 50 people called Judas in, in the database, common names, there'll be lots of them. So it's, it's, a, it's, it, 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 it's done by individuals, but by every individual whose name is recorded in any kind of source, inscriptions, papyri, and, and so forth. So uh, it, it's a database of about 3,000 in named individuals from the period around the New Testament, including the period of the Gospels. Um, and so you can with some accuracy, I think, determine which names were the most popular among Jews of that period. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
the, the results, it, it's actually something that, you see, a lot of these, there are a huge number of people, all we know about them is their names. So it's not a resource that you would normally use for history. It's a fresh kind of resource that you can do something different with. Um, so if you, if you then list, as I, I did in the book, the most popular Jewish names, you can list them in order. Um, Simon is the most popular. Um, and you compare those with the Gospels. Um, and what you can do with the Gospels is to put together, you don't have a huge number of people with names in the Gospels, but if you put together the four Gospels, all the individuals who are named in the four Gospels, and you could add in the first part of Acts, which again is Palestinian Jewish names, um, put all those together. So there's the evidence we have from the New Testament of Jewish names in Palestine in this period. And it actually matches much, much closer than I expected. I, I was a bit surprised. I didn't think it would, you know, I didn't think the statistical basis would actually give us quite such a good match. <clears throat> but um, it matches terribly well the kind of um, uh, relative popularity of the names. Um, and it's not just a case of saying, ah, oh, some of the names in the Gospels were very popular Jewish names, because someone inventing characters could have done that. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's the correlation with uh, much more precisely with the relative frequency of various names. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are some names in the Gospels that are very unusual names, and you'll find those in the Jewish data, um, again, as rather unusual names. And there are Simon, I mean, there are lots of Simons in the Gospels. There are loads of Marys mm -hmm. in the Gospels and Acts. Um, Mary was the, much the most popular uh, Jewish woman's name, um, about a third of Jewish women. Can you believe it? About a third of Jewish women in Palestine were called Mary. Yeah, I used to tell my wife that. About 25%. <laughs> if you lived in first century Palestine and you saw a woman coming towards you, you said, Hi, Mary, you had a 25% chance of being right. That's right. And, and if you then tried Salome, you, you had an even higher chance of being right. Um, there, there, were, there were fewer Jewish women's names than, than men's. Um, but, uh, you know, and then you actually, if you look at the Gospels and people get all these new Marys muddled up, you know, there are lots of Marys and, and people have always been tempted to identify these Marys. You know, Mary Magdalene identified with Mary of Bethany. No, no, no. Um, they're different. It's just that there were lots of women called Mary and therefore the Gospels very carefully distinguish them. You know, there's Mary Magdalene. There's Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's Mary, the wife of Clopas. There's Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. And these are ways of indicating that these are different women um, and we certainly shouldn't be trying to identify them. Mm -hmm. And you're looking at this, it is saying that, I mean, this is the kind of thing that you really can't chalk up to coincidence. And no, that, that, yeah. That's exactly the point, that's exactly the point. And, and, and it's also significant, you see, that it's by putting the four Gospels together that you can get these figures. I mean, within any one gospel, there really aren't enough names to be statistically significant. You put the four gospels together, that's how you get this kind of result. And of course, the, the four gospels were written independently. You know, they didn't, uh, the four authors didn't sit down together and invent these names. Uh, so you wouldn't get a result um, um, that works for the four gospels put together either, I think, by coincidence, because it's too close, but nor would you get it by, as it were, deliberate manufacturing of names, fictional, mm. fictional names, um, because it just, it just wouldn't, wouldn't work that way. Mm. Um, so I, I think it's very interesting evidence. Um, the other thing that you find in the gospel is very interesting, and um, it's 
This is specifically for Palestinian Jewish names. Names in the Jewish diaspora were different and worked differently, so you have to focus on Palestine. Um, but Palestinian Jewish names, because there were a lot of people with the same name, lots of Simons, lots of Jameses, lots of Judases, lots of Marys, um, you had to have ways of distinguishing them. And so they and they didn't have surnames in our sense. So you get these various different ways. You can use patronymics, you know, Simon, son of Jonah. Uh, you can use occupation, Simon the Tanner, um, Matthew the tax collector. Um, you can use other relationships, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, presumably because James and Joseph were well-known people in the early church, so their mother is known by reference to them. Um, where someone comes from, Mary Magdalene, because she came from Magdala. So there are all these different ways of, if you then look in the Gospels at how they distinguish different people, they use all these different ways that we find in um, Palestinian Jewish literature and inscriptions and so forth. So the names are very authentically Jewish-Palestinian. Um, they, they fit the way people used names um, in that context. And I think you also have it better. When the names show up, the names are meant to contribute us in not just to who the person was, but that that person was an eyewitness. Uh, excusing, of course, famous people everyone would know, like Pilate and Caiaphas and such. I mean, Indeed. Matthew and Luke aren't saying, go to Pilate and Caiaphas, they will tell you all about this. They were saying, because everyone is well known, but if you look, take a lesser figure, like, say, Jairus, the synagogue leader, or Simon of Serene, and yes. then when these, got, these names drop off in the Gospels later on, as because the person has likely died by them, you can't go to him. Yes. I, mean, I, th I think the, inter the really interesting case is with these minor characters. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it, most of the minor characters in the Gospels are not given names. You know, most of the people Jesus heals don't have names. People he encounters in one way or another. Uh, people who appear, as it were, in just one episode in the Gospels usually don't have names. Um, but then you've got these few instances where they do. Characters like Zacchaeus, um, Jairus, you've already mentioned, Bar Bartimaeus is another one. So why should there be just these few minor characters who do have names? And I've never heard a plausible explanation other than these are the people who first told these stories. Um, and so their names were attached to their stories. And, uh, you know, I think it's quite possible that Mark got his story about Bartimaeus from Bartimaeus himself. Um, so he, he, knew, he knew his name and he wanted to use the name as a way of indicating, you know, this, this is how Bartimaeus himself told his story. Mm -hmm. Now, I think also one of the reasons that this is done is because I believe you said in your book that usually most ancient historians did not specifically cite their sources when giving an account. Which, yes. it, it's very surprising us today, because if we're writing any historical book today, we're going to say, so-and-so says, so-and-so says, so-and-so says, but they didn't do that back then. And this, is, this isn't even just in Jewish history, but it's in secular history as well. But what the gospel writers are doing about is pretty much saying, hey, this is my source, without explicitly naming them as their source. Yes, I, I think that's right. I mean, it's a bit of a generalization to say that ancient historians didn't name their sources. They, they do sometimes, but they do it far less often than we might expect. Mm -hmm. 
they do do what actually Luke does. You know, Luke writes a preface, and he's, only, he's the only gospel writer who writes a sort of preface that a historian uh, would have written, you know, to introduce his work. And Luke does what you'd expect in that preface. He talks about his sources there. You know, he says that his material comes from eyewitnesses. Um, but on the whole, so I think ancient historians were storytellers. Um, that's how history was presented. It had to be a good story, a story you could listen to and get involved in. And they didn't want to keep interrupting the story by saying, oh, by the way, I took this from so-and-so, you know. Yeah. Um, so, um, and that's true of the gospel writers too. So Mark doesn't want to have to put in a sort of, uh, you know, a parenthesis saying, you know, I got this from Bartimaeus himself who told it to me in Jerusalem. He doesn't want to interrupt the narrative in that way. So it's a kind of subtle way of indicating the sources. And what I have done since writing the book um, is to find some really good examples, I think, of ancient historians doing just the same kind of thing, um, naming a character in order to indicate their source for that particular story they tell. Um, where they felt it was a good idea to show that they did have a good source. So there, I've got some examples from Plutarch and Josephus and so forth, and that those will be one of the extra chapters in uh, the 10th anniversary edition of Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. So that's something people can look forward to in the new edition. Yeah, and you know, when you were talking about how these were read to be told as stories, in many ways, of course, still historical, right? Everything that, you know, if we read many historical accounts of Jesus today written by historians, we wouldn't really think of, ooh, let's go and hear the author read this book as something entertaining. I mean, today, for for them in the ancient world, hearing a life told by Plutarch or something read by Josephus and such would be for us probably like going to the movie theater and watching a documentary about so-and-so today. Yeah, that, that, that's a very good illustration, actually. You know, we tend to think of history, you know, history, history written today. We tend to think of, you know, the dry academic volumes on, on historians' bookshelves. But actually, we, as it were, receive history in lots of different ways. And as you say, there are documentaries and there are sort of biopsies, what they call biops, you know, where, <coughs> um, uh, and, there, and there are various sorts of, you know, and, the, the modern historian, the conscientious academic historian, um, will be terribly careful about, uh, you know, telling only what we can actually verify. You know, so, so modern historians actually don't tell stories because very often you don't have the story; you have the few elements of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, an ancient historian would intuitively make a story, um, but so do modern documentaries, modern um, uh, films about historical characters. Um, you know, a very serious historical documentary may well include a bit of dramatization. You know, they'll, they'll create a, a bit of dialogue between some characters and dramatize it for you. Yeah. No, none of us worry about, you know, did they really know the exact words that were used on that occasion? We know the conventions. Um, mm. And the conventions are you tell a good story. Um, so I think, I think it's a kind of a question of genre of literature. And ancient people, uh, they wanted to be, of course, they wanted to be more than entertained. They wanted to be edified. Ancient historians always want to, you know, do something useful, teach moral lessons or, you know, enable people to admire great figures or things like that. They always have a, um, a sort of edifying purpose. Um, but they've got to hold their readers' attention. Um, and, and so they've got 
to tell it in an attractive, interesting, uh, often um, you know suspense making, all, all the skills of a of of a of a storyteller. Yeah, I'm also thinking that in our society, we're very much individualistic. So it could be that my wife would go out somewhere with, say, her mother-in-law or her, her mother or her father or a good friend, such, and I'd be home alone. And it'd be fun to say, well, I'm just going to pick up a book, go through and start reading here. i got some time myself and such. But in the ancient world, that kind of individualism really wasn't as common. I think most everything was done in groups, so when we talk about private reading, private reading, I mean, I'm sure it happens sometimes, but it wasn't the norm. No, that's right, and uh, of course, most people lived outdoors, actually, much more than we do. Um, They had houses, but they, you know, they did their cooking and sleeping there, but uh, they lived out, they lived in public much more than we do. Um, so, as you say, things are, uh, and the fact that most people couldn't write, couldn't read, to go back to our discussion about literacy earlier, the fact that most people couldn't read um, didn't mean they didn't have access to books. It just meant they depended on other people to read to them. Um, and, and, you know, and there, there were public readings. I mean, you know, pop, popular philosophers in the ancient world would give public readings of their, of their works. Um, so people were quite used to um, hearing texts read. And you have to, you have to hold, if you, if you're doing it orally, you've really got to hold the audience's attention. If you don't hold their attention, they wander off. Um, so, uh, you know, it's really important. You know, when, uh, Bart Ehrman was on Unbelievable Debating my friend Tim McGrew, he spoke about the Book of Acts and how he says, you know, these, uh, people may be talking about these stories in the privacy of their homes and it would get distorted and, I think, no, no, this kind of stuff wasn't talked about in the privacy of the home because privacy really wasn't kind of a big deal back then. It's kind of like how people talk about it. If you grew up here in America in the 1950s, if you were out playing with your friends and you did something that you shouldn't have done, by the time you got home, everyone in the neighborhood knew what you had done. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes, that's a very good point. Um, (laughs) And of course, even family life. I mean, ordinary people didn't have houses with a lot of rooms in them. Most people didn't have their own room, as it were. You know, you, you lived in, in family. You slept all in the same room and, and so forth. Um, so even within the family, uh, you're much more uh, living publicly, as it were, living with others. Than, you, you, there's very little chance to get away on your own. The only way to get away on your own, of course, what Jesus does in the Gospels, is go off into the hills, just go somewhere uh, where nobody else goes. Um, um, but, you know, otherwise, that's, you have to do that, really, to get away from other people. Mm-hmm. Now, something else that you've talked about in your book, and this is what Ehrman brings out many times as well, and a lot of people bring out, is that if we talk about Matthew, for instance, you say, well, geez, why should we think Matthew occurs? When you go to that ninth chapter, Matthew's talking about in the third person. Who would do that? And yet, that's actually pretty common in the literature, isn't it? Yes, this is this is true, and and it's another aspect actually of this not wanting to um, disrupt the narrative. If you're telling a story and you, the author, actually took part in that story historically, um, if you start saying "I" um, talking in the first person, it kind of interrupts. It it, it gives an, another sort of angle. Suddenly, you're conscious of the author speaking to you. It's like breaking the fourth wall. Yeah, that's right. So. Um, Actually, most ancient historians, if they appeared in their own 
history, and very often they did, um, talked about themselves in the, in the third person. Josephus does it. He, he just has stories in which he says, Josephus did this and went there and so on. And a lot of it, Josephus does quite a lot in his own story, um, the Jewish historian Josephus. But it, it's, it's actually normal in ancient uh, literature. And when the author speaks in the first person, it's because they want to interject as the author and tell you something. Um, actually, there's one case in the Gospels which almost works like that. Um, it's um, uh, in in John's narrative of the crucifixion. Um, and do you remember, um, uh, the, he, he says that the one who um, the one who witnessed this is true. I'm forgetting the exact words. Um, uh, and uh, and you know that in other words he addresses the readers as you it's when, it's when Jesus' heart is pierced with the spear and he says exactly. one who saw these we know his testimony is true yes and uh, those are not the exact words because there's there's an there's a, an address to the readers that's the point I want to say you know he, yeah. he, he speaks to the readers as you at that point mm-hmm. um, and if, if someone says you then then he's implying the I so that that's where he, he, he's actually interjecting in the in, in the in the first person. Um, it's um, it's like I mean the, in the prologue, of course, you, you've got uh, we have seen his glory. That, that's the author speaking in the first person, but that's in the prologue. You can do it in the prologue. Is that would that also be a parallel in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew, where he says, "Let the reader understand." Uh, yes, yes, I think that, I think that's right. I mean, that's clearly not part of what Jesus is saying in the narrative, is it? Yeah. It's a sort of parenthesis that the reader, in, you know, the author interjects, yes. Hmm. Now, I'd like to remind one at this point that uh, the Deeper Waters podcast and all that we do here is supplied and funded by listeners and supporters like you. And you know, I've heard from some of you this past week talking about the show, talking about the blog, how much you like and appreciate and it really does mean a lot. I mean, I think I might have said this last time, but I, I even heard, had some messages say, you know, I know you hear us all the time. I said, no, no, actually, we don't hear this all the time. And <laughs> it's very, very encouraging when you get to hear this. And my guests come on free of charge. I, I'm not able to pay them anything, and they're giving free of themselves. And I'm very thankful for people like Dr. Borkham who do come on to share with that's all the things that they've learned and studied. But if you want to take part in supporting us, if you want to support the, har- the harvest that we're doing here, go to deeperwaters.ddns.net. And while there, you can find the link that says, Help Support the Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministry, something of that sort. You click it, it takes you to the Ministry of Risen Jesus, which is the ministry of Mike and Debbie Lacona. Have you gone to the right place? Yes, those are my in-laws. They do our collecting for us. My mother-in-law, Debbie, is a financial guru. She especially specializes in clergy taxes. So, yes, she handles all of it. And you click on, and you make the donation to to Risen Jesus. Then you contact her or Mike or me or my wife, Allie, and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. They'll make sure we get it, and it is tax-deductible. And if you can become a monthly donor, that would be even better. That's the bread and butter of what we do here. And someday I really hope there's something special we can do for all of our monthly donors. And you can also go on Amazon and buy some of the e-books that uh, I've written or co-written. Co-written books include 
books like Defining Inerrancy or Groundless or one I wrote a debate with an atheist, God and Natural Disasters. And then one I've written individually, and yes, there are some more I really need to get back to work on writing individually. But one I've written is uh, A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed and Today's Christian. And uh, you can also, guys, pay attention to this one. You can buy jewelry and support us, because I'm sure you might have noticed women love getting jewelry. So if you want to get brownie points or points to ensure to save you for your future screw-ups that you're definitely going to be making, or points to redeem you from past screw-ups, buy some jewelry. Go to Premier Jewel from our page and use the code word LOVE. My friend Lena Kester handles that. Whatever you buy, 25% goes to deeper waters. Now, um, Dr. Barkham, normally I uh, turn this over to my guest, but you've said you really can't think of a charity. I'm guessing that's still the case, right? Yeah, it's simply that charities I support are sort of UK charities that I don't think your uh, listeners in the States would know about. Well, it, you could name them if you want to, but I mean, we do have some UK listeners here, but we we will move on. Then. Well, let, let me just okay. say, I, mean, I, think, I think a really key thing that Christians ought to be doing at the moment is supporting uh, Christians who are persecuted and in danger in, in Muslim countries in the Middle East and, and you know, refugees um, mm-hmm. for those situations. I mean, there are so many very brave Christians and Christians who are dying, you know. So uh, I think supporting Christians in uh, not, not just Islamic countries, but very often it's Islamic countries where, where, where it's very tough to be a Christian is a good idea. And, and I mean, the two agencies I know who do that are, are the Barnabas Fund and um, uh, 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 a charity called Open Doors. Mm. Um, so um, uh, if, if your listeners like to look those up and find out about them, they may they may find that those are good 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 things to support. Yeah, I think another one would be Voice of the Martyrs as well. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. So there, there's four charities you can support today. Um, now, when we were talking about this, also when you know these would be would be readings done. One other aspect I was saying why they wouldn't say I is because these were done in honor shame cultures at the time and. Uh, well, you were supposed to be seeking honor. You didn't want to do things like honor grabbing, as I would say, and such. You make it look like you're explicitly trying to get honor. So you go and say, well, I was an eyewitness. I saw this because people were turning you off in because they say, oh, you're just, you're just trying to get honor that way. Yeah, I, I don't think I agree with you there. I okay. mean, you're true. You're, you're right about honor and shame, but I don't think it applies in this case because, mm. um, it was important for historians to, um, as it were, give people their credentials. You know, right. how do you come to know this? Because they were bad historians. You know, people people wrote history and made it all up. Right. So the good historians are very keen to. Uh, Josephus. I mean, Josephus is very forthright about he was there, but he tells us that in the preface. You see, he doesn't interrupt the narrative. Mm-hmm. Right. Now you also speak about what you call the inclusio yes. accounts. And Mark is your favorite one, I think. Uh, what do you, what's going on with an inclusio account? Yes, um, it's, it's really an aspect of what I said before about the role of Peter in, in Mark's gospel mm-hmm. uh, and how Peter is the first disciple uh, of Jesus to be named in, in Mark's gospel rather prominently. And then he's also 
right at the end of the gospel. He comes in again. He's not actually in the story because it's the story of the women at the tomb, but he's mentioned. The, the angel says, go and tell Peter and his disciples. They could have just said, go and tell his disciples. He chooses to say, go and tell Peter mm-hmm. and his disciples. So those two references to Peter form a sort of sandwich um, construction, um, a, a sort of bookends, if you like, um, around the whole of the narrative between them. Mm-hmm. Um, in which, of course, and I think it's important that within those bookends, Peter appears very frequently. Um, but the bookends sort of um, mark uh, mark out the material that Mark is relying on in a general sense um, as, as Peter's testimony. The interesting thing is then you look at Luke's gospel. Um, and Luke, of course, takes over quite a lot of Mark's gospel and sometimes puts it in his own words, sometimes abbreviates Mark, but substantially he gives us a lot of Mark's gospel. Um, And I think to indicate, even within Luke's gospel, that Peter is the source of that material, um, Luke again has this uh, bookend structure where Peter is that. But the interesting thing is that the occasion of Peter being named at the beginning and the end are both, in Luke's case, different from the occasions in Mark. So it's not as though Luke has simply taken over Mark and by accident this bookend structure comes with it. He's created his own bookend structure, um, references to Peter at the beginning and the end. I remember I used the inclusio argument when I debated uh, Ken Humphreys on Julian Charles's show, The Mind Renewed, and debate since he runs the website jesusneverexisted.com which as you can imagine then it was a very entertaining event (laughs) but if the inclusio a lot of people really aren't prepared for that kind of argument but do we have any examples of this going on in secular literature um well the i think it's worth saying the inclusio as a general sort of literary device was enormously common in ancient literature. And you could find all sorts of other examples of it in the New Testament. In other words, the inclusio simply means that a chunk of text is introduced and ended by something similar, so that when you get to the end, you're reminded of the beginning. And so it was a way in which ancient writers would sort of mark off a bit of text um, and, and tell you something about it by the way they begin and end it. You can find examples in, in Paul's letters, it, loads of examples in ancient literature. So it's a very, very common device. So people understand it, they look for it. And I think that helps because we're we're not familiar with it. We don't do this in modern literature, so we don't sort of notice it. But once you start noticing it, you'll you'll see how how frequent it is. Um, So I think it's a case of that general use of inclusio, um, which ancient people were much more used to seeing as significant than, than we are. Um, and I think, you know, to read ancient literature, you've got to, as it were, get, get inside the conventions of, of how people wrote in those days. We're used to the conventions of how people write nowadays. We don't have to think about them. We just absorb them. We, we, we absorb them automatically. And, uh, and you know, they, they, they speak to us without our having to think about it. We're reading ancient literature. We sometimes have to think about the conventions of ancient literature, which are not familiar to us. I, I can't but think about the words of another Englishman the past, C.S. Lewis, who wrote about how you should read old books because they they often see the blind spots of your culture that you do not see and can critique it. Yes. And we're, yes. we're so familiar with our styles of writing, we don't realize it. And someone from the ancient world could look at our writing today and think, gosh, this is awfully cumbersome. This is just so dry and boring. Why do you write yes. like this? Yes, yes, yes. 
Yes, yes, that's right. Um, I mean, another thing worth realizing about the Gospels is that in comparison with modern books, they are very, very short. Yes. You know, I sometimes say to people, why don't you just read through a Gospel from beginning to end? It doesn't take very long. (laughs) You might well spend that much time reading a novel, um, and you've only read part of the novel, but the Gospels are very short. Um, And uh, there are various reasons for that. But one of the things it means is that something like a Gospel tends to be sort of packed with meaning um, more than you know, um, someone who's writing a novel at much greater length would, would, mm-hmm. would need to do. Yeah. Um, so thing, things like this inclusio, uh, re- reference to, to um, named characters, things like that, are part of the way that uh, the author is sort of packing information into his text without having the space to spell it all out. I think someone like Bruce Molina has said that in our modern culture, people would say, we use a lot of words that say very little, but we could probably look at the ancient world and say they use little words that said a lot. Yes, that, that's absolutely true. And uh, another way of thinking about it is, that, you know, if you read one of... Mark, Mark is the most... Um, and Mark's, Mark tells his stories at, um, at a fair bit of length compared with Matthew and Luke. You know, Matthew and Luke always abbreviate Mark's stories. And that's because they've got to make room for lots of other stuff that they want to put in their Gospels. So they abbreviate Mark's stories. But... Even one of Mark's stories, um, if you compare it with uh, a a modern story of that kind, a modern writer tends to fill in much more of the the sort of circumstantial detail. You know, he'll tell us about the scene, you know, what what, what does it look like, and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, I think ancient writers were used to reading a a more sort of spare narrative and using their imagination Mm. to fill it out, to make a sort of... So, um, you know, it's true of biblical stories generally that they're often very, they're confined to the essentials of the story because we're expected to sort of read them slowly and, and fill them out with our imagination. Mm-hmm. Now, when we look at the eyewitness testimony, sometimes I think it's when we're doing our evangelism today, we can't really win for losing a yeah. lot of times because. You can be debating someone like, say, an atheist on the Gospels and say, but the Gospels aren't by eyewitnesses, they're just hearsay. And then you can make a case such as your book and demonstrate that the Gospels are either eyewitness accounts or come from eyewitnesses. And then you would say, well, eyewitness testimony isn't very reliable anyway. It's like, oh, okay, so why do we even bother here? Um, what do you think about when people do say eyewitness testimony isn't very reliable anyway? Um, I, th- I think that the fact the facts of the matter are that reliable uh, eyewitness testimony can be remarkably reliable, and they're well-attested examples of that. It can also be very unreliable. Mm -hmm. Um, So we actually have to think about what sort of eyewitness testimony are we dealing with. Um, Now, one of the things that uh, a lot of of the psychological research on memory um, is actually focused on eyewitness testimony in court or in police context, you know, judicial context. Right. Um, And you can see why you know, that's a very important subject that the psychologists research. Um, and it's actually quite alarming um, because, you know, one begins to wonder whether we can rely on eyewitnesses in court. But the, uh, but the problem is, you see, that very often what, what you're asking the eyewitness to remember are things that the eyewitness wasn't interested in observing at the time. Mm. 
you know, some bystander um, and, I don't know, you know, the getaway car passed them. And then you ask them, you know, did you notice that car? What color was it? What sort of car was it? They weren't interested. They weren't attending to those things. So, of course, they haven't remembered them. Um, Things that people remember well are things that um, were important to them, um, things that they were involved in, you know, not not just a, 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 a bystander who's now asked to remember something they weren't looking at, but they remember, people remember things they were involved in. Um, and often things that affect them emotionally. Um, so those, those are the kinds of things people remember. And so you have to ask, what sort of things do the Gospels contain by that standard? Um, these are stories in which um, the disciples of Jesus were really involved and, and really, really important to them. You know, they were life-changing events for them. Mm-hmm. Those are the sort of things people do imagine, uh, do remember well. And the other thing about memory is um, a lot, a huge amount of our memory is lost very, very quickly. But what we retain um, tends to be pretty stable. Um, and again, it's this business of the gist of a story and the details. You may not remember the details, the gist very often survives. And if you then tell the story to yourself or to someone else soon after the events, um, and then go on telling the story, um, two things happen. One is that from a very early stage, the story tends to uh, take a stable form in your mind. Um, so you, it, it's almost as though you were to write it down on the page, but it, in your mind it it takes a standard form, which it then retains when you go on telling it later on. Um, and the other thing is, if you remember something and you repeat it and you go on telling it to people, you'll remember it much better mm-hmm. than if, if you never think about it for 20 years yeah. and then you're asked about it. Um, and of course, in the case of the Gospels and the eyewitnesses, we're talking about stories that they were telling from almost as soon as it happened and they're constantly telling them. Um, so they... Uh, they, they weren't likely to forget them in that sense. If they remembered them the next day, because huge amount of stuff you've forgotten by the next day, but what they remembered the next day, they're likely to remember the, for the next 40 years. Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking that Ehrman talks about, for instance, the challenge of exploding in college students who would get their accounts wrong a year later. And I was looking at think there are a lot of these college students also weren't directly emotionally involved with a challenger explosion. Now, when you look at something like 9-11, most all of us were emotionally involved with 9-11 because that affected our entire political scheme for up up until this day. I mean, I can still tell you that when I was in Bible college, we had a sermon in the chapel right before 9 a.m. Someone comes in and says, hey, a a plane's hit one of the Twin Towers. And when I hear that, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, there was a drunk power. What what a tragedy this is. Then we get done with sermon around 10, and here comes out someone again saying, the second tower has been hit. And I think everyone knew immediately, okay, we're under attack. And that changed everything. So that leaves them much more. And we all saw it on TV over and over. Yes, 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 that's right. Mm -hmm. Um, They're known as flashbulb memories. Um, They're a special case of, of memories, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I, and there's a huge literature by people who've done the cognitive psychology, you know. Um, the, the other reason I think actually why um, the results, if you don't look carefully, the results can seem as though they're always saying that memory is unreliable. 
Um, and that's because what the psychologists are interested in is understanding how memory works. And where memory goes wrong is actually much more helpful in trying to understand the way memory works, the, the when yeah. it's functioning well. Uh, and so in a way, the, the psychologists want their uh, subjects to get things wrong. So if, if they do a test, and mostly what they do is test in laboratories, artificial kind of things, but the, if they do a test and a huge percentage of people get it right, then they make the test more difficult because they want to have um, the people getting it wrong to study. Um, so, you know, you have to look at what, what are the psychologists interested in? What are they trying to do in, the, in, these, um, in these experiments? Um, and it depends on how they set the test. Uh, how many people get it right. So again, you've got to think about um, the context, what sort of things are people remembering, and, and so forth. Um, and often in these text, text, tests, what they do is give people a few nonsense syllables and see how well they can remember it. I mean, things that are a million miles away from actually living real life and remembering things. And when you talk about wanting to find that cases of being unreliable, right? could, it, could it be a parallel for instance, someone says, I don't want to fly on a plane because plane, flying on a plane is dangerous. I mean, don't you see on the news all the time, planes crash, planes crash, and they ignore yes. all the planes that fly safely every single day because the crashes are ones that we're very interested in. Exactly, exactly. Yes, yes. And it might all, almost be the case that um, uh, an aeronautical engineer who wants to study how planes, you know, go wrong will also focus, of course, on the times when they do go wrong. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what the psychologists are doing. Um, but they're not necessarily saying, you know, memory is unreliable. They're, they're saying, you know, we focused on this because that's what we want to think about and study. I also think it's why you said that people will forget the mundane, but they won't forget as easier things that stand out. There was a, I was attending a church at, it was my home church at that time back in Tennessee several years ago, and a pastor gave a sermon one Sunday, and I'm sure it was a very good sermon. And then at the end, he said, out of the blue, he made a little announcement saying that he was officially retiring, and he would only be there for a few more Sundays and such. And I can pretty much guarantee you that most people today have no idea what the sermon was about that day at all. Even though we just heard it, we completely forgot it, because yes. this news that came is what really stuck with us. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And of course, the other thing people say about sermons is that congregations remember the jokes. Yeah. They, they, forget, they forget the whole sermon, but the joke was the thing that struck them. Yes. Uh, sadly, you know, one would have thought that, you know, one could preach sermons in such a way that the message was the thing that struck them. But very often, it's not the message that the preacher intends to give them. It's some joke or, you know, as you say, some bit of news or something out of the ordinary uh, that they remember. Uh, and uh, Robert McIver in his book on uh, Jesus' memory and the synoptic gospels yes. talks about how there are these things that he calls flashbulb memories that something yep. so dramatic you remember it immediately and these are kinds of things that you really wouldn't get wrong per se I mean it, it's one thing to think that Jesus said an encouraging word to a blind person it's something totally different to think that blind person regained their sight Absolutely. And to think the memory changed that much, he says, seems like a bit of a stretch. Yes, 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 that's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And the other thing, you see, I think, I think this business, we've, we've talked about it before, that, but the difference between the gist of a story yes. 
the, and the details. And I mean, the psychology confirms that, um, that usually what we remember is the gist of the events. And when we tell the story, the details may vary depending on who we're talking about or talking to and so forth. And, you know, the, the famous cases, I mean, everybody says, you know, the women visiting tomb in, in the, in the gospels, you know, you've got four accounts and they're all different. Um, but it's exactly what one would expect. You, know, you would expect the gist to be very clear in their minds. It's an astonishing event that the details, they, they get muddled. You know, why not? They, you're likely to get the details muddled in that sort of experience. They won't want mattered. So the, the, the key thing, the message that he's not there, the stone was rolled away. Those, those are the things yeah. that we're really taken with. Yeah, and I mean, the, the main thing people went, it's not because it's like, Okay, okay, we get, yeah, the Messiah came, he died, he rose again, but who was there? Come on, huh? Who was there? The, the main focus is going to be, yeah, Jesus came back to life again, and that, that's what you're going to be looking at. You're not going to be looking and saying, yeah, but I want to know who was there for it. Yeah, exactly, yes, yes. Now, one thing you do say about the uh, resurrection appearances, I think, is that the women who are named are named because they're the ones who were alive who could talk about it. And so when we get to the end in John, which is believed to be the last one written, usually you only have Mary Magdalene mentioned by name. But then when she goes to speak to Peter and the disciple who Jesus loved, she says, we, instead of just her, which means she didn't go alone, but it could be at that point she's the only one who's still alive who you can talk to. Uh, that's a possibility. I, I didn't actually say that myself. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure that I think that about the women. I, I think that, I mean, Mary Magdalene was clearly the best known woman disciple of Jesus. Right. Uh, and so I think, I think that's a, you know, a more likely explanation of why John focuses on Mary Magdalene. Um, but it's also, though, it, again, we're back to this storytelling thing. Um, a, a story about an individual encountering the risen Jesus is a much more engaging story than a whole group of people. Um, you know, Matthew tells us how Jesus appeared to, he, he speaks about two women to when Jesus appears to them. It's a really colourless story, you don't remember it. Um, Mary Magdalene, focused on this one person, um, is much more engaging. Um, so I think there's a, there's a literary technique of focusing on an individual, even when there are other people involved. And, and, and as, as I said, you pointed out, uh, John is not unaware that other people are were involved because he has Mary Magdalene say we but he's focusing in the individual because you know John like particularly like Mark I think Mark and John are great storytellers they know how to tell the story in such ways to engage their their readers so I think it's kind of a literal uh, reason in John's case why he focuses on on the on the one woman I doubt if Mary Magdalene was still alive then I mean the the, the author of John's gospel um from the end of the gospel, you can tell that he's one of the very last of that generation to still be around. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that's why, you know, some, some people wondered, he must, he must be going to be still, allowed, still around when the Lord comes, you know. Um, and he's, he's uh, at pains to say that's not the case. But clearly that sort of rumour, you know, he must be the one who will survive till the coming of Jesus. That would happen when he's very old and, and there aren't many people around still from that generation. So I wouldn't really, possible Mary Magdalene is still around, but I wouldn't want to make anything of that idea. I find it interesting, I found it interesting in Jesus before the Gospels that 
Ehrman spends so much time about how memory isn't reliable, memory can't be trusted, and he, at one point where he talks about Berger Gerhardson's theory on memorization, and he yes. talks about how he talked to his teacher Reisenfeld, and he has this conversation where he asks him a question, he gets a response, and he says, and I decided at that point that this idea of inerrancy with error, that the traditions were reliable, just didn't make sense to me. And yet, this account would have to be at least 30 years old, and yet Ehrman wants us to take it as reliable, as this is what happened, when in his yes. whole book he's been saying we can't trust accounts that are this old because they're not reliable. Yeah. I, I must admit, that particular story uh, about Riesenfeld, um, I found quite incredible. Yeah. Um, do, do you remember it? It's the story of um, the healing of Jairus' daughter. And in Mark's version, um, Jairus uh, comes to find Jesus, and Jesus goes back to the um, house with him. Um, and Matthew abbreviates the story um, so that, what is it, I think, does, does Jesus tell Jairus his daughter is healed or something, something like that? It's kind of different, but it's obviously different because Matthew is abbreviating the story, you know. Yes. Uh, uh, and Bart remembers Riesenfeld saying, well, that it must have happened twice. These are two different occasions. I can't believe that. I mean, I, yeah. I honestly think Bart's memory must have failed him there. Um, it's so obvious that what Matthew is doing, and it's only because Bart thinks that in order to be reliable, um, these must be actual sort of... Uh, absolutely accurate in every detail. I mean, that's why he, if that's the impression he got, he, he found it uh, disillusioning. Um, but um, as, as you say, I mean, you can just see, I, I know isn't, anyone who looks at those two accounts in Matthew and Mark will surely see that Mark, Matthew's is different simply because he's abbreviating it. Yes. Yeah, I, I looked at that to win. I, I thought the same thing as you. I, thought, I find it hard to believe an excellent biblical scholar would make a statement like that about Jairus' daughter dying twice. It, it just seems entirely nonsensical. And yet Erwin could say, I clearly remember. And I'd say, well, yeah, but in your whole book, you've been saying what you clearly remember can be clearly wrong. So why should I trust that? <laughs> yes, yes. I, I mean, I, I, I think, it, you know, it just, uh, it, it's, it, it, Bart, when he was a student, evidently thought that, for the Bible to be reliable, uh, it's got to be factually correct in every little detail of that kind. So discovering that it wasn't shook his faith. Yeah. Uh, and one can understand that, and one, one hopes that people don't uh, gather from their teaching at church or whatever, that every detail of the Bible has to be factually correct for the Bible to be reliable, because they will be disillusioned if they think that. Um, uh, but the, the odd thing about Bart is that he carries that idea over into, for example, arguing with me um, and saying, you know, because these uh, accounts are not uh, reconcilable in every detail, how can they come from eyewitnesses? Um, and I think it distorts his view of the issue, actually, that his own intellectual history on this point. Mm -hmm. We here in America at least make a big deal about I've been a testimony, and we compare it to a court of law and such. Now, considering what you've written, if we had Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all right here, I mean, if we're assuming, let's just assume for a second argument, they're the main sources behind the Gospels. If we had them all right here to give an account of what they had written in the court of law, how well do you think their case would hold up? 
I think um, I, I do think that's very difficult because um, courts of law aren't actually judging that sort of thing, um, and uh, by what standard would they would they be judging it? You know, I mean, they might look at the supposing the court of law was looking at the four accounts of the empty tomb, and um, they 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 wanted to um, uh, they wanted to prove that Joanna was there. Uh, because it was her alibi for a crime that she's accused of having committed mm. somewhere else. Um, then, they, of course, they would say, you know, well, Joanna's not there in Matthew, Joanna's not there in Mark, Joanna's not there in John. So it's very dubious whether she was there, wasn't it? Mm. Um, but that's because they're, they're asking a particular question. They want to know whether Joanna's there um, in order to prove something different. Um, and the Gospels are not trying to do that. Um, so um, I, I think one has to be cautious about that. Um, and one has to be quite sophisticated about eyewitness testimony in court. It, it's not as simple as one uh, one would imagine. You know, witnesses can be led. Um, all kinds of things can happen in courts. And I, I think, you know, uh, the psychologists have done a good service, I think, by by examining that and, 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 and actually getting judges and juries to be more discriminating about eyewitness testimony. Um, but... The, the, the really interesting thing, I think, is to contrast that with the Gospels. Mm. The Gospels are, are not the same kind of testimony. They're not testimony to the same sorts of things. Um, so you can't transfer the unreliability of eyewitnesses in court. Occasional, not, not always unreliable, but sometimes they can be very unreliable. Um, you can't just transfer that to the Gospels um, because you've got different contexts, different kinds of memory and so on. It's, it's really different. How would you compare the Gospels, if their reliability and such, to other secular writings of a time, such as, say, Plutarch or Josephus or Suetonius or Tacitus? Um, again, you see, I think um, it is interesting to do that, and I think most ancient historians rely very heavily on those historians for their account of events. I, I, think, I think most ancient historians treat those kinds of sources um, very differently from how Bart Ehrman treats the Gospels. You know, they are much more ready to rely on those sources. Um, the interesting thing in someone like Suetonius or Tacitus is that they sometimes say, um, this is the story that was going around about something, but I don't think that's very reliable. I don't believe it. Or there are two different stories people tell of this. And uh, I can't be sure which one is true. So actually, they 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 sometimes um, you know share with us, um, as it were, their testing of of their sources and tell us. You know, a lot of people say this, but actually, there's reason not to believe it. So that they they they're discriminating um, and and showing us that. Um, it's actually interesting thing about the Gospels. It's slightly different, but it's interesting. You know, uh, people say, well, we only have. Uh, these people's view of Jesus. You know, we, we only have Christians' view of Jesus. We only have the views of people who became disciples about Jesus. So isn't it all kind of distorting? The gospel is very interesting in the extent to which they report what other people said about Jesus. There's a whole lot of stuff in the gospels about, you know, people saying that Jesus was a, a drunkard and a, uh, 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 um, uh, By the prince of demons, he cast out demons. Exactly, yes. I mean, there, there are lots of things like that. Um, so the Gospels actually don't don't hide 
the fact that there were a lot of different attitudes to Jesus around. Um, and in a sense, they're asking their readers to choose, you know, which, which, which seems most plausible. Now you've read the account. Um, but um, I think if the Gospels were propagandist in a really bad sense, uh, they would have suppressed those other um, views of Jesus uh, among Jesus' contemporaries. Yeah, uh, I think Gary Habermas even said when I read him say, if you want to hear about the counter theories of the resurrection, they're talking about the Gospels, that, that, yes. the, that the body's been moved, that it's just nonsense, things of that sort, yes. it's all there. Yes, yes exactly, yes, yes. Yes, and the disciples don't believe the women because they're just women, you know, they get things wrong. Yep. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Borkham, it has been fascinating having you here. It's been a treat. Uh, unfortunately, our two hours is nearly up. Uh, if people want to find out more about you and what you're doing, do you have a blog or website where they can get in touch with you? Um, I don't have a blog um, because I would never keep it up regularly if I did, but I do have a website which is richardborkham.co.uk. Uh-huh. Uh, very easy to remember. If you forget it, just Google Richard Borkham and you'll find it. Um, and there are various things on it. Um, I'm not very good at keeping it up to date, but from time to time I update it. It does have a complete list of all my publications. Various unpublished papers and things that I put on it. And also, if anyone out there is interested, the book Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Now, you might want to hold off and get from when it's coming out later. I think it's coming out in the fall sometime, right? Uh, yes, it'll be out in, in yes in, in the autumn. Um, uh, from Erdman's, of course, who did the first edition. And uh, there really is 40,000 words extra material. So even if you've got the first edition, <laughs> that's quite a good reason for buying the new edition. If you can't wait to buy... The new one, and you want to get the first edition right now. I'm looking on Amazon. The Kindle is 1548, and the paperback, which they say is a perfect paperback, it's very interesting. You've written a perfect book, apparently. Uh-huh. Is a is 1666. Um, Doctor Borkham, do you have uh, any final words you'd like to leave today for the Deeper Waters audience? Um, I can't think of anything. Thank you very much. I mean, it's been very interesting. Um, it's quite tiring doing two hours of this. I think I just want to go away and rest. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for the time you've given us, and I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have Luke Crawley coming on, talking about his book, The Myth of a Non-Christian. For now, I am Nick Peters, and I am signing off. <laughs>